Evangelicals love to preach Paul, and for good reason. So many great heady themes, justification by faith, union in Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But what we have often neglected is the stories behind Paul's words. We love to preach about the gospel stories because often following narratives make it easier to truly grasp the big ideas of our faith. So likewise this morning, I would like to begin with the story of the Corinthian church and Paul. I'm hoping that this story will help you understand the big ideas we will be studying this morning and in our series on 2 Corinthians in the next few weeks, as well as understand how relevant Paul's teaching is to our community here and now. Let's start with the culture in Corinth. Corinth was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, so it was no backwater. In Paul's day, it was probably the wealthiest city in Greece and a major economic as well as cultural center in the Roman Empire. It was also a relatively new city. The population had increased as people came to Corinth hoping to take part in its economic growth. Perhaps think of New York as the Rome of that day and Corinth as the Silicon Valley. There were lots of people there trying to make a new life and had come up with a lot of new ideas about God and about how to live. There were up to 34 different deities that were worshiped. The names of those in the community that Paul mentions in the letters speak to the cultural diversity in the Corinthian church itself. Jewish names such as Aquila and Priscilla and Crispus, Roman names such as Fortunus, Quartus, Justice, Greek names such as Stephanus and Erastus. The Corinthian culture was also known for being rugged individualistics, their ruthless competition for honor. It was a very much of an honor-based society, which was displayed often in one's accomplishments and possessions. Moreover, the desire to, per to participate in religious cults was associated with the promise of advancing in social status. Thus, the people were drawn to flashy orators and the religions of the wealthy who had held lavish banquets in honor of their gods. This is the culture that provided the seedbed for the Corinthian church's problems. Paul first arrived in Corinth on his second missionary journey in about 50 AD. In Corinth, he met his long friends and longtime friends and co-pastors Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers, as was he. So he stayed with them and founded the church and he labored there for 18 months. It is said that he found many in Corinth who desired to follow Jesus. But it could not have been easy, <clears throat> excuse me, for Paul to establish churches in Corinth. Paul was a humble apostle, a tent maker, who by self-admittance was not a flashy preacher, had an uproad battle to shepherd his church into a true expression of the Christian life. Not long after his stay, he wrote 1 Corinthians, a letter which he addressed few of the problems he understood the church was struggling with, namely the class-structured fellowship the Corinthians were experiencing in their community, which manifested itself in poor conduct during their Lord's suppers. It was also a very factious church. Different factions were following different leaders who boasted of their own personal power, position, and gifting rather than the power of the gospel. And the results were devastating. Instances of gross sinful behavior were occurring in the community. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses these divisions over leadership, worship, and social class, and disagreement over what was appropriate behavior for Christians. Sometime after sending 1 Corinthians, he sent Timothy to Corinth on his behalf to kind of check up on how the church was doing. Timothy found that the problems had only escalated. So in response, Paul quickly returned to uh, change his plan and visits Corinth. This is what he calls his painful visit in the second chapter of 2 Corinthians, a visit in which his authority was now openly questioned. When Paul left to go back to Ephesus, the situation had not been resolved. But by the time he writes the letter we know as 2 Corinthians, Paul has heard better news from Titus, who has visited the church and worked there and reports that the Corinthians have indeed repented of their poor behavior as well as kicked out most of Paul's opponents. Yet they still remain divided over whether to trust the legitimacy of Paul's leadership. Does any of this sound familiar? We too have struggled with divisions over leadership in the past year and a half. But even in the larger Christian context, we have witnessed famous pastor after famous pastor falling after reports of the gravest of sins. And evangelicalism has lost its reputation as we've been shattered over divisions in leadership, over politics, and how to respond to racial injustice. I think that all of us have come to wonder on one level or another which leaders we can trust. I know my daughter recently came into my bedroom after reading some horrific story of, um, of a, another Christian pastor, said, who can we trust, Mom? Who can we trust? Why does Christianity have so many problems with their leaders? But this isn't a new problem, and maybe we can find just a little bit of comfort in that. And we, too, have been disappointed by the actions of one bishop that led to bringing in another bishop, and now we're going to be having to learn how to trust yet a new bishop when one is called. And many of you also might not be able fully to begin to trust your local leadership, the clergy and the vestry of all souls. None of us have been perfect in this last year or acted perfectly. So you may even be fearful about the selections of a new rector. But one of the key questions that 2 Corinthians addresses is who can you trust to be your spiritual leader and what gospel to believe? Is it a gospel about ourselves or about Christ? Paul's overall motivation in writing 2 Corinthians is to ask the Corinthians to trust him and the message that Christ gave him to preach. And he emphasizes over and over again throughout the letter that it is Christ who told him to speak in the way that he speaks. It's a deeply personal letter in which Paul openly expresses his own struggles with ministry in the face of opposition and is forced to even justify his actions towards the Corinthians. Early on, he states, we have spoken frankly to you, Corinthians, and we have opened up our hearts wide to you. Paul is willing to allow himself to become vulnerable, and he wants to pave the way in this letter towards eliminating this friction when he arrives for his final visit. It is a letter that demonstrates Paul's tenderness and love towards his flock. He admits his weaknesses, but he views himself as one who has still been able to glorify God. He views himself as one that honor still is due, but not because of himself, because 
these weaknesses demonstrate that his identity is in the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit work in his life. One commentator writes that Paul can say, I am right and you are wrong without being arrogant because he understands that he is weak and that he is sufficient only because of the Holy Spirit's works in and through him. And his weaknesses are to reveal God's glory. So Paul believes that the ministry, the measure of a leader lies in humility. A leader's ability to see that all their successes must relate back only to the sovereignty and power of God. He says, we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord and ourselves as slaves for Jesus' sake. A word slaves in an honor culture would come across as dissident and strange, but that is how Paul describes his leadership. He is a slave to his people. Secondly, Paul criticizes those leaders who promise too much. Paul's opponents point to their successes. They boast of spiritual experiences and supernatural signs and promise the Corinthians they will have the same thing if only they will follow after them. Thus, one of Paul's major, letter, major themes in this letter is the relationship between suffering and the power of the Spirit. This is the background of this morning's passage, which is part of a longer passage that began in chapter 4, where Paul spoke of his own personal suffering in a manner that contrasts his affliction with Christ's triumph in his life, so that he may make clear in his words that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our bodies. In our passage this morning that begins in chapter 5, Paul continues by drawing a con another contrast between our earthly existence, mortal bodies in an age of suffering and sin, with the future hope of our resurrected bodies in the new heaven and the er new earth. Paul desires to encourage the Corinthians to not lose heart based on this one hope, the resurrection of our bodies in the future, and that our um, afflictions in this present life are momentary. That while this life may be filled with groans of longing, we have the confidence that one day we will rise with Christ, with resurrected bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. Therefore, Paul sets up these contrasts, life versus death, earthly home versus heavenly dwelling, home in the body versus home in the Lord. He says we may fear death when our spirits will be unclothed from our bodies, but Paul insists we will be further clothed when we receive our incorruptible bodies. And Paul intimates that it is our suffering in this life that prepares us for this glory, not our successes. And he points to the Spirit as the guarantee that gives us good courage in the midst of the, of the suffering.
This language of being away from our true home while we are at home in the body speaks to our state almost as refugees or as sojourners or pilgrimages on this earth. This is not our home. We are pilgrimaging towards a new home. And we've used this imagery at All Souls to describe our journey together. But we need to be careful, just like the false leaders um, who placed expectations that our journey towards wholeness is going to be without bumps or roadblocks. We need to be careful not to be surprised when we encounter difficulties or disappointments. We have to remember that our final destination in this journey is our heavenly dwelling where Christ reigns at his judgment seat. This is what we must long for as we hold carefully the, the present. Perhaps you sense a bit of dissidence in this passage when Paul states that all will be judged according to what they have done in the body. Is Paul all of a sudden introducing a works theology? Hardly. Paul, throughout this letter, states that the cross of Christ discredits all that could complain superior righteousness or power or spirituality or wisdom that derives from their own self-sufficiency. Perhaps we even find this warning because those super spiritual leaders that the Corinthians were following and still arguing about tended to excuse their moral laxity because the body did not matter, only the spirit. In contrast, Paul states that the spirit prepares us for judgment by transforming our desires, which are to be eternal desires. And that is how our earthly behavior is transformed. We must understand that Paul's words of encouragement in this passage point ultimately to his conviction that we will not be found naked on the day of judgment as Adam was in the garden, but we will be clothed in Christ's righteousness so that we will be able to stand confident before the throne of grace. The story has a good ending. From what we know from comments in Acts and Romans, Paul was received well at his final visit to the Corinthians. And the preservation of the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, most likely at Corinth, points to the peace that was made and preserved between Paul and his beloved Corinthian flock. They were able to accept their imperfections and their weaknesses and learn to trust each other. May we too, in the words of our collect for a new rector that we find in our prayer book, be preparing ourselves to be ready to receive a new faithful pastor who will preach the gospel, care for us, equip us for ministry, and lead us forth in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Amen.